If you are visiting or just joining us this week, and uh, especially I want to welcome those folks who are watching Facebook Live online, um, we have been working through the Gospel of Luke, and we've been doing it since the end of November, if you can believe it. And uh, we've been marching through the Gospel and building and hearing the stories and getting a far deeper understanding of who Jesus is, what He came to do, and what His mission is. And uh, we're getting to the climax of the story. And so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. I encourage you, if you have your print Bible, uh, you can open that to Luke chapter 22 or start the app on your cell phone or just read the scripture on the screen. I want to begin with a story from pastor and author Max Licato uh, today. He says, There once was a bridge that spanned a large river. During most of the bridge, the day, during most of the day, the bridge sat with its length running up and down the river, parallel with the bank, so that ships could go by on each side of the bridge. But at certain times each day, a train would come, and the bridge would need to swing sideways, connect with the rails, and then the train could pass safely by. And the conductor always knew because there was a signal way down the tracks that would kind of trip a light and let him know that the train was coming. And one evening, the switchman was waiting for the last train of the day to come. And he saw the light, and he looked off in the distance. Sure enough, there was the train coming. He stepped to the control and waited until the train was within the prescribed distance. And then he began to turn the bridge. He turned it into position, but to his horror, he found that the locking control that locked the bridge in place did not work. And if that bridge was not securely in position, it would wobble back and forth at the ends, causing the train to disrail, and that entire trainload of passengers would end up in the river, almost certainly dying. He left the bridge bravely. He left his shack at one end and hurried across the bridge to the other side where there was a lever switch that he could hold to operate that locking control manually. He would have to hold it with all of his strength as the train crossed. He could hear the rumble of the train now, and he took hold of the leader lever and leaned back to apply the pressure, locking that bridge. He kept applying that, pres- that pressure to keep the mechanism locked. Many lives depend- depended on this man's strength. Then coming across the bridge from the direction of his control shack, he heard a sound that made his blood run cold. Daddy, where are you? His four-year-old son was crossing the bridge to look for him. His heart panicked. His first impulse was to cry out, run, run. But the train was too close. Those tiny legs would never make it across the bridge in time. The man had a split-second decision to make. Save all the people on the train or try to reach his son somehow frantically. In his panic, he realized it was impossible, and he held on to the lever. And as the train zipped by, the passengers fully unaware of the sacrifice that had been made for him. And as the train left the tracks and safely went down, the man sobbed, holding on to the lever. It's a tragic and emotional story, And it's often used to describe 
the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it's not without its parallels. It's true. God could not save all of us without the death of his one and only son. The heart of God the Father did twist in grief as the cosmic gears of justice slammed down upon Jesus. And it's sad and true that so many people live their lives completely oblivious of the sacrifice that's been made on their behalf. But there's one inference in the story that's woefully in need of correction. Jesus' death was not the result of a mistake, of a panicking cosmological engineer. The cross wasn't a tragic surprise. Calvary was not a knee-jerk response to a world plummeting towards destruction. It wasn't a patch job or a stopgap measure. The death of the Son of God was anything but an unexpected peril. No, it was part of a plan. It was a calculated choice. And that's what we're going to discover today in Luke chapter 22. We're going to begin in verse 7. And this entire scene is what Leonardo da Vinci famously captured in his painting, The Last Supper. We've all seen the painting, we know about it, and today we're going to dive deeper into what was happening that night when Jesus celebrated this final meal with his disciples. Beginning in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? No worries. He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. They prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I'll not eat it again till it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. It's an interesting scene. Jesus sends Peter and John to prepare the Passover meal. Now Jesus and his disciples are faithful Jews. They along with probably up to a million other Jews in the city of Jerusalem at that time are celebrating Passover. And it's helpful maybe just to remind ourselves what indeed the celebration of Passover was and what it meant to the Jewish people. In ancient Egypt, Pharaoh had a prized slave workforce, the Hebrew people. They had been allowed to flourish and grow and prosper for many generations. Scholars estimate there may have been as many as two million Hebrew people living in Egypt. At some point, the pharaohs decided enough with these foreigners living in our midst and prospering. It's time to use them to be our slave labor force. We got a whole bunch of pyramids we're going to build. We need somebody to build them for us. 
By the time when God sends Moses to be his spokesman, they had been brutally treated as slaves for several generations. So God sends Moses to confront Pharaoh and demand that he let the Hebrew slaves go free. Pharaoh doesn't listen, so God ramps it up each and every time through the ten plagues. The plagues get more and more severe as they go on, and each time Moses is pleading with Pharaoh. He's begging him. He's saying, spare your nation this pain. Spare the people these awful trials. Let the people go. But Pharaoh's heart is extremely hard. He won't let the people go. And finally, God sends Moses to say there is one final plague, the tenth and final plague. God will take the firstborn son of Pharaoh and all the Egyptian people if he won't let them go. Moses gives Pharaoh lots of warning. The ultimate judgment is coming. Let them go. Save your firstborn son. And through this plague, God provides redemption for his people. In the midst of this tenth and horrendous plague, if the people will take a pure, white, spotless lamb, if they will sacrifice it and paint the blood of the lamb on the doorframe of their houses, then God will not take the firstborn of any family who did that. Most of the Hebrews obey. Possibly some of the Egyptians did as well. We're not told. Then the angel of death comes that terrible night, but passes over the houses that have the blood of the lamb covering their house. Pharaoh wakes up the next morning to discover his own son is dead, and the crying and wailing of the nation is deafening. We're going to take a little animated glimpse at this scene uh, from the Prince of Egypt movie that DreamWorks put out. The reason I chose this one is because it does better than almost any other movie about the Exodus. It shows the grief and the sadness of Moses as he comes and gives Pharaoh this final warning. And he is not doing it triumphantly, saying, oh good, my enemies are going to suffer. Moses is crying out to him, saying, avoid this at all costs. Do anything you can to avoid this. Let the people go. And ultimately, Pharaoh chooses no. So we're going to dim the lights and take a look at the clip. Ramesses, your stubbornness is bringing this misery upon Egypt. It would cease if only you would let the Hebrews go. I will not be dictated to. I will not be threatened. I am the morning and the evening star. I am Pharaoh. Something else is coming. Something much worse than anything before. Please, let go of your contempt for life before it destroys everything you hold dear. Think of your son. I do. You Hebrews have been nothing but trouble. My father had the right idea about how to deal with your people. Ramesses. And I think it's time I finished the job. Ramesses. And there shall be a great cry in all of Egypt, such as never has been or ever will be again.
God has come to me again, saying, Take a lamb, and with its blood, mark the lintel and posts of every door. For tonight, I shall pass through the land of Egypt and smite all the firstborn. But when I see the blood upon your door, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not enter. stop it there. So this is what Jesus and his disciples are celebrating in the Passover feast. That moment when God saved the entire nation. What God did for one nation in the Exodus, he is now doing for the entire world through the sacrifice of his one and only son. Jesus is the fulfillment of that pure, spotless lamb. Jesus never committed any sin his entire life. Jesus' blood is about to be spilled in order to save the people. And it's so crucial to understand that it was Jesus' choice. Christianity's harshest critics have called Jesus' sacrifice on the cross cosmic child abuse. God the Father forces his son to die on behalf of the world. But it wasn't cosmic child abuse. Jesus chose to do it. Why? Because of his incredible, mind-blowing, history-changing love. Again, Max Licato states it so well. He says, the cross was drawn into the original blueprint. It was written into the script. The moment the forbidden fruit touched the lips of Eve, the shadow of a cross appeared on the horizon. And between that moment and the moment that man with the mallet Place a spike against the wrist of God, a master plan was fulfilled. What does that mean? It means Jesus planned his own sacrifice. And that explains the glint of determination on the face of Jesus as he tells Peter and John to go prepare the Passover meal. This was his last moment of peace with his disciples before the storm. Now, Jesus says some very significant things here. For the past three and a half years, he has traveled up and down the length of the country with his disciples. They have constantly heard him talking about the kingdom of God is coming. And it began with Jesus' arrival. Now, Jesus tells them three really important things. 
First of all, he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. And what that shows us is that Jesus loved and cared for his 12 disciples. He had shared life with them. They had sacrificed with him, giving up everything to follow him. Jesus loved these guys. And it's actually mind-boggling for us to stop and realize that it wasn't just 11 out of the 12 that he loved. He, in fact, even loved Judas, the one who would betray him. Then Jesus says, before I suffer, Jesus fully knew this was coming. Then he says, for I tell you, I'll not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Jesus will rise again. One day, the kingdom of God, when he returns, will be fulfilled and complete And this is where we get the practice of communion from. Jesus models for those first disciples and all the rest of us what he wants us to do. To remember and think of him. What he did down through the ages. And into this deeply moving and beautiful actions and words by Jesus, there is our disciples. You never know what they're going to say or do. And that's true in our next scenes as well. We're going to pick it up. Excuse me, in verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. As we have just seen, our practice of communion is the fulfillment and deeply connected to the Jewish feast of unleavened bread and the Passover. Might be helpful for us to have a quick glimpse at how the Passover was traditionally celebrated in Jesus' day. There's seven different elements. Number one, a prayer of thanksgiving by the head of the household, drinking the first cup of wine. The eating of bitter herbs is a reminder of the bitter slavery in Egypt. And then the host's son would inquire, why is this night distinguished from all other nights? And the father's appropriate reply, either narrated or read. Number four, the singing of the first part of Psalms 113 and 114 and the drinking of the second cup. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, you his servants. Praise the name of the Lord, that the name of the Lord be praised. Both now and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, 
The name of the Lord is to be praised. And then fifth, the carving and eating of the lamb together with unleavened bread. And that was very symbolic. The lamb is obviously representative of the original Passover in Egypt. And the unleavened bread was a sign of of having to leave Egypt in a big hurry. When Pharaoh finally said go, there was no time for the Hebrews to make bread, to put in yeast and allow it to rise. They just had to make it flat and get out of town. There was no time. And then part six, the continuation of the meal, but always eating the lamb last. And that's when the third cup is drank. So that's where we are in the celebration of Passover. And at this point, Jesus would have just said all the words we just heard. So that's, I don't know if that's helpful to you. That's helpful for me to kind of fit it in context. That is what is happening. So Jesus begins to say, you've always celebrated the Passover your entire life. You fulfilled it. Now you're seeing the ultimate fulfillment in me. That explains why both Luke and Paul speak of the cup after supper. So all of that imagery in step one through six points to Jesus, and he is on the great rescue mission to save us, not from the Egyptians ultimately, but from the sin of the world. I'm going to get Connie to maybe skip ahead a couple slides there. Uh, just to the one with the lamb and the rescue team. There we go. And Jesus is ultimately the Passover lamb, once and for all, the final sacrifice. No more sacrifice is needed after Jesus goes to the cross. And what John the Baptist uttered three and a half years earlier when Jesus was baptized, he said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then third and finally, Jesus is bringing us ultimately, all of us who are part of the church are the new Israel, a new holy nation based not on ethnic bloodlines, but on faith. And it's inclusive of people all over the world. Those Jews who chose to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but also Kenyans, Syrians, Americans, Indonesians, Russians, Koreans, Australians, Canadians, open to every person on earth who trusts Christ as Lord and Savior. And all of that beautiful, inspiring language and symbols about Jesus' love and self-sacrifice are being played out right in front of them. It's the ultimate object lesson in front of those disciples. And then comes along our lovable, relatable, almost doofus-like disciples. And they all of a sudden decide to get into an argument about, hey, by the way, who do you think's the greatest among us? And if it wasn't so tragic, it would be comical. Jesus corrects them and sets them straight. Let's hear his response one more time. He says, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table For the one who serves. Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. So what do I want us to take away from this second point? Well, A, appreciation for who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. B, 
The fact that we are called to serve, we're called to follow Jesus' example. We're ultimately called to stop being so stinking selfish. Lately, I've been looking on Facebook and there are four or five uh, people I know that have put up Facebook posts that are so selfish, so 100% completely self-focused and narcissistic, kind of made me want to lose my lunch. Sorry to be so bold this morning, but I think Jesus' words, Jesus' example challenges us. It says, stop being so selfish. Be like me. Jesus said to his disciples, it's not about who's the greatest among you. He says, I am among you as one who serves. We're supposed to follow his example. All right, my rant is done. Let me say that more gently. The examples of Jesus should inspire all of us to loving service. Now we move to the final section where our friend Peter, the disciple, is overconfident. But Jesus corrects him. Let's pick it up in verse 31. Peter underwent a name change, by the way. He started out as Simon, and then Jesus kind of renamed him as Peter. And the Gospels kind of go back and forth. So Simon is Peter. Peter is Simon. Just to clear up any confusion. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you out with purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, but now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, Here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. So Peter is confident that he would never betray Jesus. While Jesus knows that Peter is like a piece of grain at risk, being crushed in the cosmic struggle between Satan and God. Being a player in a cosmic struggle should humble Peter, cause him to rely on God. But Peter way overestimates his ability to remain loyal to Christ. I love the insights and applications scholar Daryl Bach offers. He says the ability in all of us to sin runs deep despite one's best intentions, intentions. Intercession will keep him from falling entirely. Only total dependence on the Lord and a sense of weakness without him can preserve even the most zealous disciple. And that is such an important point. For you and I, as we attempt to follow Jesus in the real world, a world of temptation on one side, pressure to give in and compromise on the other, and it really isn't about our awesome intentions that will win the day. It's actually dependency on Christ. And Jesus has promised us the power to do do what he calls us to do, but we have to ask for it. That last point to touch on is Jesus' comment. But now if you have a purse, take it. Also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, 
sell your cloak and buy one. What Jesus is saying in these words that sound a little confusing at first is simply be prepared. Something awful is coming. The point is that the world has made its decision about Jesus. It's going to try and kill him and get rid of him. Therefore, anybody who follows him had better be ready to be treated in the same way. When Jesus says, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one, a lot of people have misinterpreted that as Jesus offering a call to violence. But it's not. It's simply a call to be prepared. And if we need any proof of that, just a mere eight hours later, when Jesus is arrested, Peter will pull out a sword and try to defend Jesus. Jesus rebukes him, commands him to put the sword away. Jesus modeled nonviolence, he preached nonviolence, and he refused to resort to violence at the end of his life. Well, we've covered some pretty significant ground in this passage, and I hope you've been taken deeper and inspired by this exploration of the Lord's Supper or communion. We have seen clearly today that Jesus' arrest, trial, and death, it was not a random accident of faith. In fact, the entire thing had been planned out since the dawn of time. It's a loving choice made by Jesus. And that should cause each and every one of us to reflect just how deeply we are loved. We've seen the heart of Jesus as he prepared to offer himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The greatest of all becomes the least in order to serve. We have been challenged today to do a little self-evaluation. Check how bad our selfishness really is. If we claim to follow Jesus, we must serve others and not ourselves. Finally, today we've seen Peter's well-meaning but completely unrealistic boast to stay loyal and true no matter what. I want us to walk away with the conviction that it isn't ultimately about trying harder. It's about depending more on Christ. If we can be inspired by loving self-sacrifice, committed to serve others, and choose dependency, we will have taken a giant step forward in our maturity to follow Jesus. Amen? Shall we come and pray for us?